Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweel as he continues his sermon series, The Gospel Matters. If you'd like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. A long, long time ago in a a faraway land, I was a kid growing up in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. An interesting thing happened at my family that I really haven't experienced since that time for many, many years. Every morning at about 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning, a kid would be riding on his bicycle past our house and past all the driveways on our block with this huge shoulder strap bag slinging it over his shoulder as he went through and bicycled through the neighborhood. And he would toss these objects out of his sack and they would land sometimes on the driveway, sometimes on the yard. Uh, it, was, it was a really weird kind of thing that just really doesn't happen too much anymore. It was, it was one of these things where my dad, he would go jogging, he would come back home in the morning and eat his cereal, and he would open up this clear plastic bag, and inside of it was this thing called a newspaper. It was amazing. It had all these different sections in it. There was uh, local news, there was world news, there was the opinion section, And of course, my favorite was the sports section. And we just, we would sit down, we would read the headlines, we would eat cereal together, and we would read the newspaper. Have you ever heard of this before? (laughs) What was awesome about reading the newspaper with my dad was no matter what was happening in the world, all all the beginning parts of the paper, the front page headlines, the political section, the economic section, all of it was like, the world's about to end, this is horrible. Desert Storm was going on, and so we'd read about the the war overseas in the Middle East. We'd read about all the chaos that was happening. But it it really was a race for us to get to the sports page. And this is one of the reasons why I grew up loving sports, because both of us absolutely loved the sports page, and, and there was something amazing about sports entertainment that existed at that time that does not exist in our day. And that is this, when you read the sports page, you read the sports. You didn't read the politics behind the sports. It was almost like there was this unwritten rule that went along with sports writers. We are going to report the sports, we are not going to report the politics. And I remember when I trusted Christ, I was 19 years old at Mississippi State, and, and and I just loved the fact that when you played sports, it didn't really matter if you were liberal or conservative, it really didn't matter if you were right-wing or left-wing, if you were a Republican or a Democrat. You could, you could go to a baseball game and enjoy America's pastime. You could really put all that stuff to the side and just enjoy a game. Remember that? Remember those days? Now, you really can't do that anymore. And I remember when I was, was a freshman at Mississippi State, a trusted Christ, and I came to be, be a believer and, and actually be a part of a local church. And the same dynamic that I experienced all those years, reading the sports without the politics, I experienced that in the church too. Every single Sunday I would go to church, sometimes with my friends in the dorm, sometimes without, and it was the church without the politics. If you were liberal, if you were conservative, it didn't really matter. You could put all that to the side for a greater good, a common purpose, and a common salvation. 
You know, and I don't know if that's going to be the case forever and in the years ahead of us. Of course, we're seeing a lot of different dynamics, but I love the fact that I could go to church and not worry about the politics until one of my friends called and shared this story with me. And unfortunately, this is a story about politics in the church. Um, one of my friends was a um, youth pastor at a church, and, and just to protect him, and I call him Pastor Sam. He goes to his church, the first church ministry that he had outside of seminary. He's, he's in this job, and he thinks this is going to be great. We got an opportunity to teach the Bible, to disciple people. Wonderful, it's going to be awesome. He comes onto this church staff, and almost immediately he senses that there's something not quite right about this church. That all the staff pastors are kind of aloof from one another. Nobody really engages in conversation. The senior pastor seems like he's, he's kind of like this untouchable figure. There's just no time to, to meet with him and to learn from him. And you can kind of toss conflict resolution to the side. Like, that's not happening because nobody's really even talking to each other in the first place. And so sure enough, what happens about a year into his ministry is, th is there's a, a conflict that emerges on the staff. But he really doesn't know how bad the conflict was or, or how, how far it had gotten at this point. And so, so he picks up the phone. He gets a call one day from a, a church member. He calls him up, Pastor Sam uh, hey, I haven't talked to you too much. Just wanted to, to try to dialogue about the situation that I've heard about. So he's, he says, the senior pastor asked me to call you and, and tell you that there's, there's a rift going on with the staff. And there's, there's two pastors on staff that are causing this rift. And so, so what I'm here to do is I want you to, to ask you if you would sign this petition in favor of the senior pastor against these two other staff pastors. And Pastor Sam holds up the phone like, whoa, hey, this sounds really serious. Like, like what's going on? And tell me, can you tell me more about the situation? And yeah, there's, there's a, somebody named Sam on staff that's causing a lot of trouble with another pastor. And one of his buddies is causing another trouble. And so they're, they have this big conflict. And so if you'll just sign this petition we can get these two pastors out and we can protect the senior pastor. And my buddy, of course, startled is, I'm Sam. I'm the only Sam on staff. I had no idea there was an issue going on. You might say that things got political pretty quickly at this church. Politics in churches is a real issue. Um, there's a first-class New Testament scholar by the name of Scott McKnight, and he recently published a book called A Church Called Tove. And in this, he lists eight characteristics of an unhealthy, political, power-seeking church. And the first characteristic he comes up with is this. <clears throat> an unhealthy church might have power and authority that is invested or vested into an individual in an unhealthy way. And here's what it says. He says, this power emerges from a pastor's position, giftedness, persuasiveness, and perceived success. Glory starts to be passed around. The pastor affirms an elder. That elder affirms another elder who affirms someone in the congregation. Before long, the pastor is surrounded by a circle 
of beholden power and glory makers. You know, in in Galatians 2, this is not a, a new story. This is actually something that's been going on for quite some time. And in Galatians 2, we see the exact same thing happening in Galatia. Paul addresses beholden power in glory makers. Now, remember in in Galatians, we're in chapter 2 here, we've been looking all the way back from chapter 1, verse 10, through the end of Galatians chapter 2, is about Paul defending his apostleship. And false teachers had risen up in Galatia to destroy Paul and to destroy his message. They were guilty of a logical fallacy. It's called an ad hominem. They didn't want to deal with the truth of Paul's message, and so instead they tried to defame the messenger himself, Paul. It's an ad hominem. They tried to defeat the message by defeating the messenger himself. Discredit the messenger, and you can discredit his message. And so Paul, what he says in in no uncertain terms, he clarifies the fact that there are three things that he will not be as a pastor and as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He will not be a people pleaser, a power grabber, or a political player. He refuses to be a people-pleasing pastor, a power-grabbing pastor, or a political-playing pastor. But I don't think that's really what we learn the most about the Apostle Paul in this section. I think, actually, what we can, we can read Galatians 1, verse 10, all the way through the end of chapter 2, and we can learn a lot about the heart of a shepherd, a godly shepherd in the New Testament. The gospel message had a profound influence on the Apostle Paul. It transformed him at the core of who he was. When he saw the radical grace of Jesus Christ and the truth of that message, it made him a completely different person. And he learned in that process that religious leadership is drastically different than gospel leadership. That those who lead according to the law are different than those who lead according to the gospel in the love of Christ. That there is a, a philosophical difference between grace-based leaders and law-based leaders. And listen, whether you are a, a parent leading children in your home, maybe a grandparent leading grandkids, you're a coach who's leading a team, or maybe you're just a mentor or a disciple who is discipling somebody younger in the faith, I want you to listen really carefully. Human beings cannot legislate morality. It is impossible for any human being to legislate morality. And the Apostle Paul tells us, if he tells us nothing else, behavior modification is not the same thing as heart transformation. Because when when God transforms the heart of a leader, his purpose is to make you an influential leader, not necessarily a political leader. He wants to give you real power, not a power that is postured, and he wants to shun politics in order to shepherd people. And listen, I'm going to use politics a lot in this sermon. And what I mean, what I mean by politics is, is not the good ones that are out there. What I mean by politics is, is those who are after power, uh, significance through their position, and maneuvering and controlling other people for the sake of themselves instead of helping other people. But I want to ask three questions as Paul talks about playing politics in the church. Three three questions in the text this morning from Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 through 21. Number one, what 
happened to Peter? What happened to Peter? Number two, why does it matter? And number three, what's at stake? One of my favorite theologians has a quote that goes something like this. He says this, in the absence of what is true, all that remains is power and manipulation. In the absence of what is true for a leader, and certainly for a pastor, all that remains is power and manipulation. Political players, number one in your outline, number one this morning. What happened to Peter? Uh, Before we get to verse 11 here, I want to back up and actually start in verse 9. This is where we ended last Sunday. Look at Galatians 2, verse 9. It says, when James and Cephas and John, now Cephas is the Aramaic name for Peter, so James, Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. Now just stop right there and notice something. There's three significant leaders in this text, Peter, James, and John. Paul comes into this circle of influence and he wants to uh, communicate the gospel, the ministry that he has had as he is defending his apostleship through them. Verse 9, it continues. Perceive the grace that was given to me. They gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and to me. Now, the right hand of fellowship is a phrase that it, it's somewhat akin to a, a handshake of partnership in agreement. Today, This is what you have when two businessmen shake hands on a deal and say, this is it, this is what we're going to do. And it comes, actually there's two Old Testament passages that refer to the very same thing, one in 2 Kings and one in Ezra. It will talk about these two men who gave their hands to each other. This is a gentleman's agreement. They shook on it. Paul's message in proclaiming the gospel was true, and it was according to the gospel that they knew after having been with Christ and the risen Christ in their ministry. The right hand of fellowship was a physical gesture of unity and strong agreement between these people. But did you notice how, I want you to notice how things shift so quickly from verse 9, just two verses later, actually as we move down to verse 11. Look down at Galatians 2 verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. He separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Verse 9 tells us that in Jerusalem, among the Jews, these guys were together. In Antioch, among the Gentiles, they were opposed. What happened Two verses, from verse 9 to verse 11, that drastically changed the situation from these guys being unified together to now actually being opposed to one another. And I find this very interesting. You know, for for the last chapter, um, most of the verses that we've covered up to Galatians in this point, Paul has has recalled his post-conversion story. He shared his testimony with the church of Galatia. And he did so for for many reasons, but specifically he talked about where he went, who he met, and what he said to them. The reasons why he went and he talked to them. Paul's entire purpose for, for retelling his story was to prove. He wanted to prove something to the false teachers, and in fact, even to the apostles, these three guys. Paul was not interested in in going to the place of power, Jerusalem. 
nor was he interested in talking to the people of power, Peter, James, and John. Paul's life was consistent. His actions matched his words, and his life was a testimony to the truth of the gospel and how it impacted his heart. Peter's life was inconsistent. His words didn't match his testimony. In fact, it destroyed the truth of the gospel because of how he was living his life. With the Gentiles, listen to this, with the Gentiles, Peter was eating. When he got to be with the Jews, he was fearing. Notice your verbs in your text. Notice the people he's with. Notice what he is doing at those times. Peter's lifestyle shifted based on who he was with and what he was saying. Instead of having a healthy and an ultimate fear of God, Peter was somebody who was fearing people instead. You guys ever see the movie Braveheart? Braveheart's one of my favorite movies. I started watching it in high school. Probably at an age I shouldn't have been watching it, and so if you haven't seen Braveheart, you wait until mom and dad say it's, it's okay to watch it. It's a great epic film. It's Mel Gibson's retelling of, of the story of the liberation of Scotland when they were under the, the slavery and really the authority of the English king of England over it. And in the story, it's, it's really interesting because Scotland is gaining a little bit, they're gaining some kind of freedom from England and if anybody of the Scots could look down and say, they are the leader, they're the true king, they're the most influential leader of the Scots, at the time of William Wallace and Braveheart, it was Robert the Bruce. And Robert the Bruce heard all of these tales about how William Wallace was liberating the Scots. He wouldn't bend a knee to English rule and, and their tyranny and their authority. He wouldn't be a slave to the English. He fought for his freedom. And so finally, Robert the Bruce says, I want to meet this man. I'm one of the most influential leaders. We are going to unite, and I'm going to give him all the resources he needs and join forces so that we can fight against the English, and we can gain our power. We can fight for our freedom. And as William Wallace is going to meet with Robert the Bruce to give him the right hand of fellowship, to shake his hand, and to understand this deal, this, this partnership that was going on, his father, Robert the Bruce's father, founds, finds out about it and he tips off the English. William Wallace walks into a trap that eventually led to his martyrdom, and, and he gave his life for the freedom of the Scots. Robert the Bruce had no idea what was going on. In the movie, his father had every idea what was going on. And so what he did in that scene and in that part of the movie is he pulled what's called a political maneuver. He got in front of the influential people, the power brokers of his day, he made a deal with them. And he became very, very political. If you wanna know what it means to be political, whether it's ministry or, or life or jobs or career, a political maneuver is the use of power and calculated interactions with, cert, with a certain influential person or group in an effort to compel another person. The use of power and calculated interactions with certain influential person or group in an effort to compel another person. Paul used the phrase in Galatians that when you read it and you understand the context of what's going on, it, it really almost, it makes you shudder when you read it. Look down at verse 12. Does your text start this way? For before certain men. Y'all know what that said? Do you remember when Jesus said something almost exactly like that in the Sermon on the Mount? When you pray, 
don't do what the Pharisees do. They go on the street corner and they say these long, lengthy prayers to be noticed by men. When you give, don't do like the Pharisees do. They drop their coins in the money bucket so that they might be noticed by men. When you fast, don't do like the Pharisees do. They want to look all disheveled like everybody knows they're fasting so that they might be noticed by men. Paul is bringing out the very same context, the very same thing that the religious leaders were doing at Jesus' time in the Sermon on the Mount. He's shocked, he's disgusted, and he cannot let ministry go on like this without addressing Peter in a very forceful way. And you probably caught it in verse 11. Look back at your text. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Literally, to his face is fronted. To his face, I opposed Peter. To his face, I opposed him. Paul doesn't pull him aside. Brad, let's go, let's go talk over here. We need, we need to have a heart-to-heart conversation. He doesn't pull him into another room and, and speak softly to him and pat him on the back in front of everybody that was there in a way that everybody else would probably hear and see it. He opposed him to his face. And he said, you, sir, are being a hypocrite. And your actions violate the truth of the gospel. What happened with Paul and Peter in this text? What happened was this. Paul, whose heart had been transformed by the gospel and wanted to see other people's heart transform the gospel, ran into a religious leader who hadn't applied the gospel to his heart in a very specific way based on his interactions with certain people. Number two in your outline. After Peter pulls the political maneuver, why does it matter? Why does it matter that Paul addressed him like this? And and why is Paul so concerned about what Peter is doing? You know, a lot of us, I think, probably, especially postmoderns, we want to say like, hey, Paul, man, you guys, you remember Matthew chapter 7, right? You're going to oppose me to my face? Why don't you stand back and look at the log that is in your own eye before you pull out the splinter that's in my eye? Why doesn't, why doesn't any of that happen in this context? One reason for, for Paul's concern and one reason that he acts so decisively in this context is because sin was spreading. Sin was like a cancer. It was multiplying by killing people. Like a river that branches and rebranches into tr- different tributaries, sin was multiplying and it was having an effect even on the apostles and influencing their ministry. Sin is an infection that spreads by contagion. And even Barnabas, the son of encouragement, where there is very little negative things that are said about Barnabas in the entire New Testament, even Barnabas was led astray by the actions of Peter and his hypocrisy. Look down at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct, Paul speaking, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, Cephas, before all of them, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I want you to listen to Paul Tripp as he explains why this is 
such a heavy, heavy topic and what Paul is dealing with in this context. Here's what he says. Sin lives in a costume. I love that. Sin lives in a costume. That's why it's so hard to recognize. The fact that sin looks so good is one of the things that makes it so bad. In order for it to do its evil work, it must present itself as something that is anything but evil. Life in a fallen world is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. Paul Tripp continues. Impatient yelling wears the costume of a zeal for truth. Lust can masquerade as a love for beauty. Gossip does its evil work by living in the costume of concern and prayer. Craving for power and control wears the mask of biblical leadership. Fear of man gets dressed up like a servant's heart. The pride of always being right masquerades as a love for bi- biblical wisdom. Tripp says, Sim- evil simply doesn't present itself as evil, which is part of its draw. You'll never understand sin's sleight of hand until you acknowledge that the DNA of sin is deception. What this means personally is that as sinners, we are all very committed and gifted self-swimmers. Paul labels not only Peter, but all of the Jews who are being led astray with a word. And that word is reserved for actors and actresses who came on the stage during a play. They're called hypocrites. And you know they're hypocrites because the actor will put on a mask. And when they put on a mask, they are acting, they are pretending to be somebody that they are not. Hypocrites. Twice. In verse 13, acting hypocritically, acting with hypocrisy. Listen, Peter needed the gospel, and this is where all of us, I love what, how Daniel Newberry put up this illustration. He, he says that when he preaches, he wishes that there would be a mirror right in the center of the aisle because he's preaching right to his own heart and right to himself. And I 100% agree with that. Every time we're, we're in Scripture, it just gives us the self-reflection of our own hypocrisy and the sin that we deal with. Peter needed the gospel. Paul needs, needs the gospel. You and I need the gospel, not just to save us from our sinful actions, but to save us from ourself and our self-deceiving tendency to think that we are really much better than we truly are. Every time we sin, we are a hypocrite. We act in a way that is out of line with the truth of the gospel. And the gospel continues to beckon us and it calls us back to grace and repentance to put ourselves to the side and to live for Christ and said, at the core of all sin is a saturation for the self. At the root of all sin is a preoccupation for self. Paul says that cannot happen in ministry. That's why it matters so much. That's why he opposes them to his face in front of everybody else because his actions were out of line with the truth of the gospel. Now, what's at stake here? What exactly is at stake? Number one, what happened? What happened was political maneuvering. Peter was deeply engaged in it. Number two, why does it matter? Because hypocrisy destroys the truth of the gospel in our testimony and in our lives. Number three, what's at stake? Look down at verse 15. This is such an important section in the book of Galatians, and I want to just take some time and define some terms. Galatians 2, verse 15. 
We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. You, know, you understand what he's getting at here in the text here? Justified by faith, justified by faith, not works of the law, not works of the law, over and over again. Verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. Galatians 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If you're looking for a good verse to memorize, Galatians 2, that's the one. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In no uncertain terms, Paul is saying that there is a lot at stake when we become hypocritical in our actions and in our Christian life. There is a lot at stake. Number one, at least here's one thing that's at stake, nationalism and sectarianism. Some people think that, that nationalism makes some people better than others. In the context of Paul's time, the Jews thought that they were a lot better than the Gentiles. After all, they were God's people. They had the law of God. They had the promises of God. The Savior, Jesus, came to the earth as a Jew. They had a history that goes all the way back to the beginning of the creation. Their God created the world. They were given the scriptures. They had a relationship. They were given the covenants and the relationships with a holy God. Peter and Paul were Jews. They had all of those things. They grew up in a system that believed that they were better because they were chosen. They were God's people. And if they kept God's law, they would be clean. All they had to do was to keep the laws of God. Every other nation, every other group of people, they were dirty, dirty filthy Gentiles. They were unclean. Therefore, we don't associate with the unclean Gentiles because they're less than us. They're not as good as we are. They don't have the things that we have. They don't have the, the privilege of place that we have because we ourselves are Jews. We don't know anything about that in America, do we? Paul says everybody's a sinner. Everybody needs to be justified by God. It has nothing to do with your race, your ethnicity, any of those things. Everybody's a sinner and everybody needs to be justified. Justification is a, a key, key term in Galatians. And so I want to just take a little bit of time and define exactly what this means. To be justified by God is to be declared righteous even though you are wrong. It is a declaration by the judge, the perfect judge, of who you are. If you are going to be justified by an all-holy God, he is going to declare your, you right, even though your life is wrong and that you are a sinner and you are imperfect. Listen to J.I. Packer's definition of justification. He says this, To justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty, but he is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. The act of a judge pronouncing the opposite sentence to condemnation. In other words, you are acquitted. 
The, the trial doesn't go on. I don't find you guilty. You are justified by Christ. God justifies us in Christ. He justifies believers by declaring them righteous based on their association and their relationship with Jesus and his belief in his death and resurrection from the cross. I want you to hold your place in Galatians and turn back to Romans chapter 5 very quickly. Whenever you, we talk about the doctrine of justification by faith, uh, the book of Romans and the book of Galatians are the two strongest places to go. Justification is uh, mentioned right here in Romans chapter 5. Look at verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have been declared righteous based on our faith. How is one declared righteous before God? Based on their faith in the justifier, Jesus Christ. He is the one who allows us to be justified based on what he has done, not based on what we have done. We simply trust God, we place our faith in Christ, and we are declared righteous. And by the way, we are simultaneously righteous and sinners. Because even though we're declared right, we are wrong. And God will fully bring to completion this act of justification and redemption when we are with him in glory and we are away from the presence of sin uh, in, in glory with God forever. God justifies us in Christ and he declares us righteous. Number one, nationalism and sectarianism do not make some people better than others. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everybody needs to be justified because everybody's a sinner. Number two, what's at stake? Attempting to rebuild something that God demolished. What's at stake here is that Peter's action would actually rebuild, his actions would rebuild something that God had demolished. Look at verse 17. But in, if, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now listen, Paul is not saying that he died to the law, meaning that he no longer obeys the law. He is saying that he died to the law as a means of salvation in Christ. Paul knew that no matter how he tried, no matter how disciplined his life was, he fell short of the perfect standard of God's law. And so he died to the law, meaning that he, he forsook that the law was going to give him his salvation and his eternal security in Christ. He couldn't fill the law. The law condemned him as a criminal and as a sinner. He died to salvation through the law, but he lives because of salvation in Christ. And for the next two chapters, Galatians 3 and 4, we will talk about these two issues, justification by faith and the law and its place in the life of the believer and the unbeliever. How do we, uh, how do we put all this together? How do we draw Galatians 2, 11 through 21 together as we close? First, I want to give you a reminder. And the reminder is this. To do its worst, evil needs to look its best. To do its worst, evil needs to look its best. Sin spends an exorbitant amount of time and money on makeup. And I keep wondering why the church in America keeps missing the seminar on sin. But we do, over and over again. People do not want to be good people. 
They want to appear to be good people because at their core they are sinners. Sin is not just something that deceives other people, it actually deceives ourself. Sin is self-deceiving. And I want to read this, um, this thought from Cornelia Plantinga because it's so good. He's got a chapter in here called Sin is a, a Masquerade. And this section is entitled Self-Swindling, the self-swindling nature of sin. Just listen to this. He says, Self-deception is a shadowy phenomenon by which we pull the wool over some part of our own psyche. We put a move on ourselves. We deny, suppress, or minimize what we know to be true. We assert, adorn, and elevate what we know to be false. We prettify ugly realities and sell ourselves as this prettified version. Thus a liar might transform, I tell a lot of lies to shore up my pride, to occasionally I finesse the truth in order to spare other people's feelings. We become our own dupes, playing the role of both perpetrator and victim. We know the truth, and yet we do not do it because we persuade ourselves of the exact opposite. We actually forget that certain things are wrong and that we have done them. To the extent that we are self-deceived, we occupy a twilight zone in which we make up reality as we go along. A twilight zone in which the shortest distance between two points is a labyrinth. Sin is self-deceiving. It deceives nobody more than it deceives us, our own hearts and ourselves. Martin Bursar, uh, old Protestant pastor, he said, nothing hides the face of our fellow man more than morality. Do you understand? Um, One person has said, uh, the quickest way to avoid sin is to become, to appear to become more like Jesus. People convince themselves that they really aren't sinners by doing good things. And at the reality and at their core, they're doing those things out of a self-deceived understanding of who they are. Martin Bursar says, nothing hides the face of our fellow man more than morality. And nothing hides the face of God more than religion. He says, we are the most religious may be the times when we are most at risk of losing touch with God. Religious people love masks. We love to portray somebody on the outside that isn't somebody truthfully on the inside. But the gospel and justification by faith came to redeem us from our self-swindling nature (laughs) to fully understand that at our core we are sinners And we have deceived ourselves for a long time, which is why we need Christ. This is why we need the gospel every single day of our lives. Number two, because our hearts are constantly drifting, the gospel is always realigning. Because our hearts are constantly drifting, the gospel is always at work realigning. The gospel is both historical and practical. Historically, the gospel was an event about a person 2,000 years ago named Jesus Christ who came to the earth He lived a perfect life. They crucified him on Calvary's cross. Three days later, he rose again from the grave. Jesus was 100% man, and he was 100% God. And he died, he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. When you believe that, when you believe you are a sinner in desperate need of God's forgiveness, and you look to Christ for grace and mercy, he gives you everlasting life. The gospel is historical, And it comes into our hearts when we believe the historical events that actually took place. 
and that we need that for us. We are sinners and we need Christ. The gospel is absolutely historical, but it is all also endlessly practical. The gospel is not just a truth to be believed, it is a worldview to be lived by. And so verse 14, Peter, a true believer, his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. His worldview needed to be adjusted with the truth of the gospel so that he could practically live out the life that God had called him to live out as a genuine Christian leader. Not one day will go by from the day that you trust Christ until the day that you are with him in glory. Not one day will go by where you do not need the grace of the gospel. On a daily basis, we need the truth of the gospel to rescue us from our self-swindling nature and the sin that so easily entangles us. It's unbelief. At the core of our sin, we do not believe what God said is true. And that is what Jesus needs to deal with on a, de- a daily basis in the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Tim Keller put it this way. Christian living is a constant realignment process, one of bringing everything in line with the truth of the gospel. Please understand this. Your Christian life is a daily realignment process back to the truth of the gospel to live a life that is sincere and genuine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, um, there's no way that I can do justice to this text in Galatians chapter 2 and justification by faith. And um, I just pray that the, the few words that were shared here this morning, that you will do work with them on all of our hearts and including my own heart. We thank you that you have declared us righteous even though we are so wrong. That when we were enemies of Christ, you loved us and you died for us. Thank you that you did the work for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, bring us back to the truth of the gospel over and over again in our struggles with sin because we all have those struggles. And we need the truth of the gospel to invade our hearts every single day. Father, we ask this to you through the Son and by the Spirit. For you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen.